And because we didn't do it last week, I want to start out by providing an orientation, a quick orientation to the book of Isaiah. This is kind of like Israelite history in five minutes, four minutes. <laughs> Your high point is King David. After King David dies, then uh, the sandcastle, we thought it was an iron tower, but it turned out to be a, a sandcastle. It begins to disintegrate. King Solomon turns out to be uh, rather a mess. So do Solomon's sons. So do the succeeding kings. We go through this long succession of kings, and it, it kind of goes from bad to worse. Worse culminates in the king, I think it culminates in the king of Manasseh, or Manasseh, he, uh, he, what he sacrifices, one of his children in this like pagan rite of, of child sacrifice, um, burns him alive to the god of Molech, and things are pretty bad at that point when, when the king of Israel is killing his kids. The prophets are there kind of each step of the way, emphatically pointing out that the people's hearts are a million miles away from God. They use these evocative metaphors to try to recapture the people's attention. It says They say things like, your sinfulness is like the spots of a leopard permanently etched in your, fur, in your fur. The prophets compare them to a donkey in heat, lusting after anything with four legs. <laughs> like they don't mince their words, do they? They're pretty, they're sharp. Eventually, they say, God is going to be done with you. He's going to wash your hands, his hands of you and send you off into exile as prisoners into a foreign land. Isaiah is prophesying before that actually takes place. So he's prophesying about 700 BC and the fall of Jerusalem doesn't take place about 500, is it 586 BC? So he's He's forecasting the fact that exile is going to occur. And the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are the the prophecies of doom. Exile is coming. When you're listening to Handel's Messiah this Christmas, pay careful attention to the the musical overture at the beginning of the piece. Because you'll notice that piece, the overture is pretty sad. It, It actually ends in E minor. I mean, it's written in the Baroque style, so it's kind of cheerful, but <laughs> it's hard to do really sad Baroque. But, I mean, it's sad. And it ends, it then what ends up happening is what is the first tenor aria in the first tenor solo in um, Handel's Messiah? What does this, the tenor come in and sing? Comfort ye. And that's an E major. And that is... Isaiah chapter 40, 40 and all the way through 55 are this prophecies of comfort to the exiled people. Comfort ye, my people, speak ye tenderly to Jerusalem and say, your God will will come to you. When you are separated from your homeland by a thousand miles of desert and your temple is destroyed and everything, doom and blood and guts and gore, all of that has happened. Remember that the rainbow is, is chapter 40 and the succeeding chapters. The night of sadness will finally give way to the, the, to the dawning of a new day. 
And that's where we're at. The new day. 49. Let's read it together. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, the Lord called me by name. Now, who is speaking? Who's the I in this passage? It's the servant of the Lord. Who in the New Testament, we talked about him last week. Jesus, the the old Sunday school story, the uh, teacher says, okay, I I, um, I look... I want you to think of this, it, it looks kind of brown and furry and eats acorns and lives in trees. And the, and the Sunday school kid is sitting there thinking, uh, 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 it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. Because in Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. Well, the servant of the Lord is definitely Jesus. He made my words of judgment like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. I am like a polished arrow concealed in his quiver. He's a prophet of the word of God, and his words are able to penetrate our defenses. So his words are like a sword that for close, he can cut people that are close by, and then his words are like an arrow. You can shoot them in a distance. God said to me, you are my servant, Israel. You represent Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I, the servant of the Lord, said, my work seems so useless. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Jesus Christ, we know, had moments of intense, bitter disappointment. When do you think Jesus, in in his life, uttered verse 4? My work seems so useless. I've spent spent my, my energy for nothing. Didn't he feel that way? When he wept over the city of Jerusalem? Didn't he feel that way when he wakes up in the middle of the night and he looks over at Judas? This guy? And he felt that way when his disciples ran off and deserted him in Gethsemane. Yet, verse 4 continues, Yet I leave it all in the Lord's hand, and I will trust God for my reward. And now the Lord says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. He says, To him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will stand at attention when you pass by. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. At just the right time, I will answer you. On the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to assign it to its own people again, to say to the captives, come out and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and will find pasture on every barren hill. 
They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them. He will lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads, and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come, they will come from afar, some from the north, some, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan, which was in the south. Shout for joy, O heavens. This is joy to the world right here. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on them in their suffering. But Zion said, Zion's another word for Israel. The little, that's the, t- hill, uh, the hill in the city of Jerusalem on which the temple was located. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Never. <laughs> Never. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast? Can she feel no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my, palms of my hands. Always in my mind is a picture of Jerusalem's walls and ruins. Soon your sons will come back, and those who laid you waste will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As surely as I live, as I live, declares the Lord, they will be like jewels or bridal ornaments for you to display. What a great passage. What a confusing passage. There's a lot of different elements here. And the way I, here's how I want to start out this sermon. I'm not... A few of us, maybe many of us, have had the experience where you're driving on Interstate 70 through the plains of Kansas, heading west, through the the never-ending wheat fields and the never-ending land of pancake-flat horizons. And you're headed through western Kansas. I'm a plains guy. I like western Kansas. None of my family does. You're driving forever, and you're like, when are we going to get out of this? When are we going to reach civilization? Then you hit the state line, and you head over into Colorado, and still the same. It's miles and miles of nothing but fields until, and I don't know what the point is, what the geographical, the precise spot is, but you reach that point where, what do you see on the horizon? You see the Rocky Mountains and all of their magnificence. And it's uh, a breath of fresh air is not the right way to describe it. It's, it is, it's so shocking the way that it stands out on the horizon. When you've been on the plains of Kansas and, and Colorado forever. Well, you continue on the road through I-70. It takes you right through the heart of downtown Denver. And then you begin to climb. You head up through, I think it's the Genesee Mountain is the first one that you, you get to. As you start to climb up through the Rockies, it is further up and deeper in, further up and deeper in. And all of the magnificence that you thought was there when you were on the plains, you're like, man, this, I would have never imagined that, this, that the Rockies are so deep. That there are so many levels to them. Further up and deeper in, uh, into, I've been to Breckenridge, 
spectacular. You hit Breckenridge, then you hit Vail. Then if you had north, you hit the Steamboat Springs further up and deeper in. And that is a great illustration of how prophecy works and how there are multiple levels of fulfillment of biblical prophecy. You start heading up. And so what's the first you know, spot in the Rockies that you hit in Isaiah 49? Well, this passage is most definitely fulfilled when those exiles come back to Israel, to Jerusalem, in 538 B.C. or whatever was the date. When the exiles come back, this passage is fulfilled. But that's not all of the mountain range, is it? You keep going further up and deeper in. This passage is fulfilled in the New Testament when all of a sudden you got people from every tongue, tribe, and nation starting to come into the church. And, and that's Breckenridge, maybe. <laughs> and then you, you get to veil. And I'm one of those Christians. I, I look forward to, I hope, in a future day when a bunch of Jewish folk, good old ethnic Jews, will someday believe in the Lord Jesus as their Messiah, and like there, there would be that level of fulfillment. I know that not everybody, not all Presbyterian Christians hold that position, but I certainly am looking forward to that day. And shoot, I'm looking forward to the day when it's not just all of the Jewish folk who get converted, but like all of every folk get converted. Is that, is that the highest pinnacle in the mountain range when Jesus returns? Is that, what, is that why not go for the whole world, Right? But, Zion says, verse 13. Oh, no, verse 13. Uh, We're not at the but yet. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. That seems to me kind of like universal, global, global salvation is taking place. But, Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. Verse 14. The Lord has forgotten me. I think that's a unifying element. We might be talking about multiple levels of fulfillment with different groups of people spread out over millennia. But one of the, uh, the unifying questions that all of those groups of people experience is, I feel like I've been forsaken by God. Has God forgotten me? Yeah, that's what it feels like. We are given in this passage three, at least three, dare I say, magnificent metaphors that that are just there to reassure us that, no, you're not forsaken. They're all to be found in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. So I'm going to look at those. That's where we're going to play around with the metaphors again. 15, 16, 17, and 18. God can't forget you. Why Why is that? Because he's like a breastfeeding mother, and you are his infant child. He's like your, your mom nursing you. I'm sure I probably told you when I went off to college, I, uh, my freshman year was at the University of Oklahoma. I ended up transferring to Arizona back home because I got homesick. But the first year at Oklahoma, I ended up living, as many college students do, in a large dormitory, 12 stories tall, a, uh, an absolute zoo of a place to live as most college dorms. And, and what I discovered as a freshman is that if I wanted to get to bed at any reasonable hour at night, which meant any time before 3 o'clock in the morning, if I wanted to fall asleep, I needed to put earplugs in 
for the last 21 years, I have slept with those little cheap foam purple or orange earplugs in my my ears. And as a result of that, um, I can sleep through anything. I may not get to sleep, but fire alarms, they're not going to penetrate my defenses. Uh, firearms. When I <laughs> when I've lived in when we lived in Mississippi, it, there were gunshots out there, but no, I didn't hear those. Fighting teenage children. None of that phases me. Um, which I know that I'm probably describing some of your husbands without their earplugs in <laughs> at night. But on the edge of the the sleep noise spectrum, I'm right here. Nursing moms have an uncanny ability to hear their infant children at night. So they're, they're right here. I, one of my kids told me they read an article or there, there's a something. I don't know where they came up with it, but crocodiles sleep with one eye open. They can do that. And that's nursing moms. They, a nursing mom can hear a child stirring you know, half a block away in the middle of the night. Isn't that a, it's a strange phenomenon. A nursing mom can hear, hear him no matter what. A, a dad will sleep through anything. It's a good thing that God doesn't use the me- metaphor. I'm like the father of a nursing mom here. <laughs> you might be forgotten, but no, no. A mom can hear a child when they when they hiccup in their crib. Um, Aaron, we've gone through five of these, and I, I forget where in the order we ended up finally buying a baby monitor, but we didn't need one. She could, she could hear anything in the dead of the night. And what is it that, what makes a mother at 2 o'clock in the morning just launch herself out of bed? When a child cries, it does something so painful in, inside of a mom that she can't contain herself. No matter how tired she is, and no matter even how much she... She might be fried and want to forget that baby. She, she goes sprinting down the hall and she hears that child cry. And he said, uh, Isaiah says that God feels the same way toward us as your mom did when you were her child. Now, it's important for us to remember the nature of human language and the nature of metaphors. Whenever we say that something is like something else, the, the nature of languages is, is that those two things are, are probably different in hundreds and hundreds of, of different ways. But the job of the hearer is to figure out how they're alike. That's how metaphors work. Kind of the responsibility is on your shoulders to make the, the connection. Do you realize that? Responsibility is on your shoulders to do this kind of theology until it finally begins to affect you. Like if, I, if I'm dealing with somebody, I've dealt with a lot of people who felt like they were forsaken by God, felt like they were forgotten by God. If I walk up to that person and say, hey, you know, God's like a nursing mother. He cares. He's so tenderly compassionate for you. Oh, a forsaken person is their first reaction. They're going to be a trampoline. That's going to bounce right off of them. That's watered off a duck's back. That's not going to do them. That's not going to do them any good. At, At first, you know, we repel. You have to, like, 
take it and, and work with it for a while until it starts to uh, affect you. It's to, until it starts to change the way you feel about God and your circumstances. I want to say a special word to the, the few in our congregation who are involved in teaching theology to other people. It could be in Sunday school class. It could be at Christian school. It could be parents who are you know, really theologically minded. We talk about, you know, let's do theology. Theology is learning five-syllable Latin words, like the circumcessio of the Trinity, and trying to figure out what that works. No, 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 no. The real, most of the theology in the Bible is basically, it's about you working the metaphors. You digging into the metaphors until they really affect you. I mean, and maybe, maybe it means that you, um, you pull out some pictures of your mom in the old photo album. And remember just what it was like to be nursed by my mom. Um, but you work on it. You work the image until, because that's how he feels about it. Number two. Okay, I think I've said enough on number one. Number two. Second illustration. Why are you not forgotten? Verse 16 is the very next verse. He says, see, I've engraved you on the palm of my hands. Um, King Ptolemy, an interesting historical tidbit. King Ptolemy the fourth ruled a Greek, a Greek empire that included Egypt from 221 to 205 BC. That's not important. What's important is that King Ptolemy, somewhat famously, had his body tattooed in ivy leaves as a way to express his devotion to the god of wine, the Greek god of wine, Dionysius. He tattooed his whole body with ivy leaves. That was probably not a, m- a moment of high sobriety in, in his life. But it, Apparently, that was a relatively common experience. You would tattoo yourself to show your devotion to your God. Now, isn't, isn't this kind of funny how God turns the image on its head? And he says, instead of you like tattooing your devotion to your deity, I'm devoted, devoted to you. I have engraved you. On the palm of my hand. Now, why the palm of his hands? What's, what's significant about the palm of one's hands? Well, I think it's just simply, when, whenever you go to do anything in manual labor, ancient world, you've got to open up your hands. You've got to use your hands. You're constant, you constantly see your hands. You clean your hands. And every, he says, every time I open my hands, whenever I do anything that has to use my hands, I do it and I see yeah, I see your name there. We say with our head, I believe in a God of love. I even believe in the biblical God of love, but it doesn't affect the way we live much at all. It doesn't affect how we feel about ourselves or about life. It doesn't shape us the way that it should shape us. It, when we hear something like God God saying, I'm devoted to you. It feels weird because, yeah, I believe in the God of love, but that just feels weird to me. God devoted to me. Um, and it, that, that seems to be different than many of the experiences of our life. 700 years before Jesus Christ was ever born, God was saying, look at his hands. <laughs> 700 years before Jesus, look at his hands. 
And we sang about the hands, just the second song of the service. Before the throne of God above, I have a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives to please, my name is graven on his. It got me thinking, okay, if you feel feel forsaken and you feel like your brain is mush, you feel like you can't work the metaphor, you can't do the spade work, you you can't dig it very deep or very hard, then just sing your theology until you start to feel it again. You sing, my, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. You sing. Sing it until you feel it. Third illustration. Verse 17, if you want to look in your, uh, your passage. Soon your sons will come back. Or soon your sons will come back. And those who laid you waste will depart for you. Look, look, lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. Now, the reason this is significant is because you're talking to a bereaved wife. A wife who has, I mean, her husband's dead. Wife with dead husbands don't expect a lot of kids. You're talking to a barren wife. A, a woman in the ancient world who suffers from infertility. She, there's no fertility drug. She's not going to. But God says, if you just open up your eyes, uh, here's the problem that you're going to soon be experiencing. It's the problem of overcrowding. <laughs> From barrenness and desertion to overcrowding. The biggest problem is that in your life in the coming days is that every room is going to be full of bunk beds. And still there's not going to be enough room. And where are all these little rugrats going to sleep? Because I've got them coming out of my ears. I love these metaphors. Um, I know, and I know when we do these metaphors that there are plenty of Christian people who we know who just do not feel them in the least. There are lots of people in our church, at least some people in our church, who their lives seem to go from bad to worse. It's, it's just, I, you don't understand why it happens to some people, but... but it, it's like one calamity to, to the next. Some of it is their own doing, and a lot of times it's out of their hands. But their lives, uh, it's, whatever can break, breaks four times in a row. That's how, and they're not, they're not feeling, they're not feeling this. But one of the ways, and you could be one of those people, one of the ways to, to press through and to have a, a faith that overcomes one's sense of experience is to just look at the world differently. And when I say bunk beds, that's supposed to make you laugh. Like when you're in Sears and you're walking around in the mattress part or in the the bedding section and you see bunk beds, you start to laugh. We do that with each other. Like if you have a friend, a really close friend or a spouse, we have these things called inside jokes where somebody will just say a word that's kind of that key trigger word and, bah, and we, we start laughing uncontrollably and the people around us, they don't even know, what are you, why are you people laughing? Because I just said bunk beds because that was a trigger that reminded me of something that reminded me of, ah, and I, that's, I think that's, again, that's what you do with the metaphors is you find a way to make them work on you. Okay, bunk beds. (laughs) 
Uh, back in 2008, the state of Nebraska passed a law making it legal to abandon your infant children at a designated drop-off site. Did anybody remember that piece of news? It's 2008. It was a, a law that had the best of intentions. It was a way to try and make sure that aborted babies, that babies would be dropped off instead of aborted. No questions would be asked. You just bring them by the local fire station and, and drop them off. If you don't feel like you're up to taking care of, of a child, well, we um, just, just put them here. The problem, and this is why especially it was in the news, was that they wrote the law too broadly so that it, it, in, it didn't involve simply infants. It could be any kid. And so for the first five months before they rewrote the law, 36 children were dropped off. 22 of them were over the age of 13. I wonder why. (laughs) One dad dropped off his entire family of nine. And none of them were infants. Not a single infant was dropped off. The servant of the Lord comes to say to the weak-hearted and to discouraged, you are not abandoned or forsaken. You are not an idiot for believing, for still believing in God. You are not an idiot for still believing that I will do something about your circumstances. In the New Testament, this passage gets quoted in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. We'll conclude here. Luke 2.25, you could turn there, I've just written it. Um, At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was on Simeon and revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Well, the day came that Mary and Joseph arrived in the temple to present the baby Jesus to the, to the Lord, their God, as the law required. And Simeon was there. He took the, this child in his arms and he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in, pe- in peace as you have promised. For I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people Israel. Mary and Joseph were amazed at what was said about him there. So here it is. This is where it's quoted. Simeon takes baby Jesus into his arms and says, My eyes have seen the light of God, the light of God to the darkened world. We don't think of ourselves um, as desperate people lost in darkness, where we need God to come and, and rescue us like the three blind mice, do we? That is what the Bible says. Like if you were to um, imagine this very minute, all of a sudden, every single person was plunged into blindness. As quickly as I snap my fingers, it's sort of like a sci-fi movie. All of a sudden, everybody on the earth goes blind. Planes fall out of the sky and crash. Uh, Cars out on the road here run into each other. The only thing that you, you, you can do, feel is the cloth of the chair that you're sitting on right now. 1,000% dark blindness in this room right now. And all we can do is, is grope our way to the doorways. 
We're tripping over each other. We're, we're calling out to each other. Is it really that bad? Are we really in that desperate of a state? Am I really that helpless? And the story of the Bible is, yes, we are. We are crippled with dark minds and dark souls, every one of us, such that only God can rescue us, and that is what he has done. 700 years before Jesus was born, God was saying, look at his hands. See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And we know that that engraving was not in the form of a tattoo, but was in the form of a stake on a cross. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And that is a reason you can trust that he is not done with us. Not yet. Amen.